Hello, fellow teachers, and welcome to Teaching with Power. I want to thank you for letting me be a part of your scripture study or your lesson prep this week. My goal is to help you study and teach the scriptures with more relevancy, impact, and power. Now, this podcast is actually the audio to my videos that I produce on my YouTube channel, Teaching with Power. So if you hear me referring to visuals and you'd like to see what I'm referring to, I encourage you to check out the video presentation on YouTube. Now, the Come Follow Me manual has us covering Mosiah 11-17 through 17 this week, but I really struggled with that because some of the key themes that I like to share in Mosiah cover a larger swath of the story than that. So I'm going to cheat a little bit here, and we're going to be covering ideas from Mosiah 11 all the way to Mosiah chapter 24 as we focus on the people of King Noah and what eventually happens to them. And then next week, we'll focus specifically on the teachings of Abinadi and then Alma at the Waters of Mormon. And I just see that as an easier way of breaking up these chapters thematically. As a reminder, if you'd like printable lesson plans based on these videos or the PowerPoint slides or the handouts that I use to make them, just go to teachingwithpower.com and you're going to find links to my channel, my blog, and my shop. And now, without further delay, it's time to dig deep. For an icebreaker, I like to begin with a quick survey. Which of your five senses would you least like to lose? Hearing? Smell? Taste? Touch? Or sight? Now, I've performed this survey with many classes over the years, and without fail, there is always one answer that gets the most votes. And that answer is sight. To the vast majority of people, going blind seems to be the worst thing that they can imagine losing. And that's where I'd place my vote as well. I can't imagine losing my sight, not being able to see the outdoors that I love so much or to see the faces of my wife or children. I love art and sculpture and watching great movies. Blindness would just prove an incredibly difficult trial to me as I imagine it would for most. But can you imagine anybody intentionally blinding themselves? What on earth would cause somebody to do such a thing? It's almost unthinkable. And yet, today we're going to study a group of people that do just that, that blind themselves on a spiritual level. And it's a particular kind of blindness. I call it King Noah blindness. And over the years, I've met many people afflicted with it. In fact, I found that it's a disease particularly more common among young people. So this lesson, I feel, is very important and very relevant for the youth. But we would all do well to listen. In our last lesson, I told you that I felt the book of Mosiah was an excellent study of sin. And these chapters are going to start out by showing us how people are drawn into sin. And often it's because they meet a Noah. And they go Noah blind. What's Noah blindness? Let's find out. We're going to begin with the subject of the story. And in this lesson, we're not going to focus so much on King Noah or Abinadi or the wicked priests or Alma. Instead, we're going to focus on the people, the people of Noah. These are very interesting people. If I were to ask how many of you liked taxes or being heavily taxed, I bet I wouldn't get a single hand. And what if I took it a step further and asked how you would react if not only were you being heavily taxed, but the government you were supporting used that money to support their sinful, 
lazy, and wasteful lifestyle. You'd probably be angry about that, wouldn't you? And if somebody came along who was willing to stand up to that government and its leaders and insist that they change, you'd probably get behind somebody like that and support them. Well, let's see if that's what they do. In verse 5, we find that the people are being heavily taxed. One-fifth of all they own. And can you imagine a government that takes over 20% of all you own? Oh, wait a second. Um, uh, no comment on the U.S. tax system. We'll just, we'll just avoid that topic altogether. And what's King Noah doing with that money? Well, we find a telling phrase in verse 4, where we learn that he, Noah, had changed the affairs of the kingdom. And how did he change them? Well, we could just go through and mark all the things that show how he changed the kingdom from what his father Zenith had set up. He doesn't keep the commandments, but walks after the desires of his own heart. He's got many wives and concubines, and he commits whoredoms. He gets rid of the good priests of his father, and he puts his buddies in their place, uh, priests that are lifted up in the pride of their hearts, just like he is. In verse 6, we find out he's lazy. He's idolatrous. In verse 14, he sets his heart on riches, riotous living, harlots. And then verse 15, he makes wine in abundance and becomes a wine bibber, just a fun word to say, or somebody who drinks a lot of wine. King Noah is quite the contrast to King Benjamin, isn't he? Where you have King Benjamin leading his people to covenants and a mighty change of heart and a desire to do good continually. Noah actually causes his people to commit sin. And the sad thing is, is that before King Noah comes along, these were righteous and good people. We see them praying to God for strength in 9.17. They're described as hard workers in 10.4 and 5. And they put their trust in the Lord in their battles against the Lamanites in chapter 10.19. And then Noah goes and blows it all. And actually, you got to see this. Look how his father Zenith concludes his record in Mosiah chapter 10.22. And I'm going to read it with my own inflection here. But he says, And now I, being old, did confer the kingdom upon one of my sons. Therefore, I say no more. And may the Lord bless my people. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the way I read it. Knowing what we know is coming next in the story. And perhaps even Zenith knew something about his son's character and has some reservations about his people's future. So, obviously, the people despise Noah and oppose him and try to get him out of power, right? Uh, no, they don't. Actually, they love King Noah. They support him. They defend him. They think he's great. Along with his wicked priests, led by a man named Amulon. And they're going to become a major part of the story later. And I love what my dad says. He thinks that that would make a great name for a heavy metal rock band. Amulon and the Wicked Priests. Uh, I could see that. So these people, they have posters of King Noah on their walls and autographed albums of Amulon and the Wicked Priests. They think they're awesome. These are very peculiar people. Why do you think they support him, though? Perhaps part of the answer is found in verse 7 because they were deceived by the vain and flattering words of the king and priests, for they did speak flattering things unto them. Um, they tell them what they want to hear, or at least what their natural man wants to hear. They're what the scriptures call soothsayers. 
And soothsayers say soothing sayings. They give you excuses to justify sinful behavior in their teachings and by the example of their lifestyle. It's okay to be lazy. It's okay to be immoral. We don't need commandments. There's no such thing as morality. No right or wrong. Just do what feels good. Life's a party. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. They tell them flattering things. You're better than everybody else. You're better than the Lamanites. We're strong enough on our own. We don't need God as a crutch to help us. You see this in verse 19. And now because of this great victory, they were lifted up in the pride of their hearts. They did boast in their own strength, saying that their 50 could stand against thousands of the Lamanites. And thus they did boast and did delight in blood and the shedding of the blood of their brethren, and this because of the wickedness of their king and priests. So the people are led into wickedness with their vain, idolatrous, and flattering words. And the scriptures tell us the people's problem in verse 29, and the overall theme is being signaled here. The eyes of the people were blinded. Well, God loves these people, and he wants the best for them. He knows where this path is going to lead them. So he's going to send them somebody. And who does he send in verse 20? He sends Abinadi. And what's Abinadi? I think that most would say he's a prophet. But I would use a different term in this case. Remember the title that Ammon used to describe King Noah back in Zarahemla. He refers to him as a seer. When you're blind, you need a seer or a seer. Abinadi has come to help the people to see things more clearly and hopefully see Noah and his priests for what they really are. We learned back in Mosiah 8 that a seer can see of things that are past, so they can take the lessons of the past and apply them to the present. They also can know of things which are to come, so seers can help us to see coming dangers or possible outcomes in our current course of action, and they warn us. Therefore, like he says in Mosiah 8.18, he becometh a great benefit to his fellow man. So Abinadi has come to be a great benefit to the people, to help them to course correct before things get ugly. And what's Abinadi's message? Read Mosiah 11.20-25 and see if you can summarize the basic gist of the message. The words, except they repent, show up at least four times. The message is, you need to change, or things are going to get bad for you. This is a warning. This road you're traveling down does not end well. King Noah is not your friend. He's leading you into bondage. You need to repent. And that will happen, except you repent. You have a chance. And how do they treat this seer, this great benefit? Verse 26. Now it came to pass that when Noah had spoken these words unto them, They were wroth with him and sought to take away his life. In verse 27, King Noah says, Who is Abinadi that I and my people should be judged of him? And then down in verse 29, They hardened their hearts against the words of Abinadi. You see it again in Mosiah 12 when Abinadi returns a second time after they cast him out, and this time in disguise, which always kind of makes me chuckle when I read verse 1. And the first words out of Abinadi's mouth are, Thus the Lord commanded me, saying, Abinadi, go and prophesy. So he immediately blows his cover. 
Although somebody once suggested to me that perhaps the disguise was just to get back into the city, and now he doesn't really care if he gets arrested or not. In fact, he wants to be brought before King Noah and the wicked priests because he has a particular message for them. But look what the people say this time in chapter 12, verses 13 through 14. And now, O king, what great evil hast thou done? Or what great sins have thy people committed, that we should be condemned of God or judged of this man? And now, O king, behold, we are guiltless, and thou, O king, hast not sinned. Therefore, this man has lied concerning you, and he has prophesied in vain. Again, they're like, Abinadi's judging us. He's judging you, King Noah. Thou mayest do with him as seemeth thee good. And we know that eventually, after giving his speech, which we're going to study in depth next week, they burn him in chapter 17. Now let's pause and draw a comparison here. Let's liken the scriptures. How are people today especially young people like King Noah's people. Oftentimes, people will meet modern-day Noahs, people who draw or lead them into sin. So, a good young man will start hanging out with a new group of friends, and they aren't really the best influence on him. He starts to dress differently, speak differently, act differently. Or maybe a young person develops a romantic interest in somebody, and that person that Noah begins to persuade them into going further and further with them physically. Or maybe a young adult goes to college and they become entranced by a philosophy, a movement, uh, the teachings of a certain professor, possibly a celebrity or some style of music, a sports star, a movie star attracts their attention. And these people and things become a type of King Noah in their lives leading them away from that which is good. And so what does God do? He sends them a Benedice, somebody who can see the negative influence, a church leader, a parent, a close friend, the teachings of the living prophet, the whisperings of the Holy Spirit. They come along and they say, hey, this isn't a good association for you. I can see the effect they're having on you. You might want to reconsider this relationship. And they offer warnings and counsel, much like Abinadi did. But what frequently happens when they're confronted? Oftentimes they defend their Noahs. They get angry at the parent or the church leader or the friend. They use the same defense Noah's people used. Stop judging my friends. Stop judging my music. You're judging my girlfriend or my boyfriend. I'm not doing anything wrong. They're not so bad. And what's really happening is that they just don't realize that they're suffering from Noah blindness. And I ask you, who really has the people's best interest at heart in the story? Abinadi. Abinadi does. He is their greatest ally, their real friend. And who is the real enemy? Noah. In fact, we know how Noah feels about his people. Just check out chapter 19, verse 8. And now the king was not so much concerned about his people as he was about his own life. That's often true of the Noahs of our lives. They're self-interested, exploiting, manipulative. They use people to get what they want. And people fall for it all the time. They see them as their friends because they tell them what they want to hear. Your parents, they're just trying to control you. They don't understand. They're old-fashioned. 
You're letting the church control your life. You don't need all these rules. Do what you want. And, and that brings me to what I feel is the major message and lesson from this story. And that's that we must learn to see the difference between the Noahs of our lives and the Abinadis of our lives. To recognize our true friends and our true enemies. And why is it so important that we get this distinction? Because Noah blindness almost always lead to Noah moments. Let's take a look at how things turn out between the people and Noah. Sometimes one of the best things you can do when you study the scriptures to really help them come alive for you is to put yourself into them. To put yourself in their sandals and imagine what it would have been like if you were there. I want you to picture this. Let's pick up the story in chapter 19. Some of the people have already begun to get their vision back and are beginning to oppose King Noah. At the forefront of this, you've got a man named Gideon, and he sets out to assassinate the king. And he chases King Noah up the tower, and he's about to slay him when Noah looks out and sees a giant army of Lamanites coming. That's where he begs for his life and basically says, uh, Gideon, don't kill me. The people, they'll listen to me. I need to lead them to safety. Although, he's only concerned for his own safety. So I want you to imagine this. You're in your home with your spouse and your children when you hear the warning trumpet sound. You jump to your feet and rush out the door to see what's happening. And the word spreads fast. The Lamanites are coming. The Lamanites are coming. For me, since I'm a father, I picture myself taking my wife and children and running out of the house. And we head to the central plaza of the city where our hero, our leader, our king shouts, an innumerable army of the Lamanites will be here soon. We need to run into the hills as fast as we can. So we turn to follow Noah out of the city gates in the opposite direction of the Lamanite forces. And we're running and running. And, and I can hear the battle cries of the Lamanites getting closer and closer. Now, I can imagine that I can run for some time and I might be able to get away. But I've got a seven-year-old son and a nine-year-old daughter. I don't think they can outrun a Lamanite army. I'm not sure if my wife could outrun a Lamanite army of, of seasoned warriors. So I grab my wife by the hand and I'm pulling her along and I, and I pick up my seven-year-old son in my arms and that slows us down. We, we just can't keep up the pace. King Noah looks behind and he, he sees the armies getting closer. And that's when he decides to issue this manly order. Leave the women and children, save yourselves. Now, in the heat of that terrifying moment, I'm so used to heeding King Noah, so accustomed to following his lead, that I actually do what he commands. I drop my wife's hand, put my son onto the ground, and take off in a full sprint after my king. And lo and behold, the sounds of battle start to fade into the distance behind me. I'm going to make it. I'm going to get away. And after I feel I've outrun them and I'm safe, I stop to catch my breath somewhere out there in a clearing with all the other men of the city around me. And then it hits me. Oh my goodness, what have I done? How could I have abandoned my family? Knowing what usually happens to women and children at the hands of an opposing army. Now, it's true, they don't kill them. Uh, the women plead for their lives, and the Lamanites have mercy on them. But at that point, 
I, I don't know that. I, I'm thinking the worst. So I say, my goodness, uh, we've got to go back. And as you turn towards the city, you hear a familiar voice cry out. No, I command you to stay. You need to protect me. And now everybody turns to see the man making that demand. And this time, we really do see him for what he is. Because, understand something here. Noah blindness is a special kind of condition. It's temporary. It rarely lasts forever. And now, in that moment, their vision has returned with crystal clarity. Now, has Noah changed in this moment? Is he any different than he was before? Nope, he's the same person. They're having what I call a Noah moment. Noah moments are very painful. They're the moment when our vision returns and we recognize the Noahs for what they really are. Some modern-day examples of Noah moments. It's the moment when we realize that we're addicted to drugs, tobacco, pornography, or alcohol. It's the moment when a young man or a young woman realizes that they're going to be teen parents. It's the moment that we're caught in a lie and we've lost trust of people we love. The moment when we've lost everything through gambling. It's the look on our spouse's or children's faces when they find out that we've been unfaithful. The moment we're arrested for doing something illegal. And then the ultimate Noah moment, at the final judgment, when we see Satan for what he really is and that we've forfeited our exaltation to follow him. I remember a former student who started hanging out with some undesirable friends, uh, some Noahs, and this was a very good boy. And his parents and his church leaders and others tried to warn him about their character, but he defended them. Well, one of their greatest amusements was shoplifting. They loved the rush it gave them to, to try and get away with it without getting caught. Well, these friends finally convinced the student of mine to try it, uh, to steal a, a jacket, I think, from, from a nearby clothing store. And he got caught. A string of shoplifting incidents had put the employees on high alert, and, and they saw him. And his Noah moment came as the police surrounded him, when he had to face his parents. It came when he realized that this incident would probably prohibit him from serving a mission which was a plan that he'd had since he was young. Now, fortunately, since it was his first offense, the sentence was eased and, and he was able to serve a mission. But I remember talking to him later and, and hearing him say something like, I can't believe I was so stupid. I, I just got caught up in the moment and the pressure. He was Noah blind. But now he could see those friends for what they really were. I've, I've known many a young man or young woman who has begun a romantic relationship with somebody that everybody else can recognize is not good for them. And parents and bishops and friends and seminary teachers all reach out with love to warn and counsel. And they become the enemy. They get labeled as judgmental and they harden their heart against that counsel. But then... Uh, many of these situations have ended up in serious moral problems, um, unplanned pregnancies, diseases, lost opportunities. 
More often than not, those relationships have ended up in hatred between the two involved. The blinded frequently end up despising those that were complicit in their blindness. And the people in our story end up burning King Noah, which is really ironic that that's who does it. It's the people who burn him. The very people who just months before idolized this man and killed a prophet on behalf of this man. Abinadi prophesied that Noah's life would be valued as a garment in a hot furnace back in Mosiah 12 verse 3. And valued is a deeply ironic word. Because at the time that Abinadi says it, they do value him. But eventually, they're going to value him as much as somebody cares about an old piece of dirty clothing thrown into the fire. And, and that's why I plead with my children, my students, my ward members, to learn to recognize the Abinadis and the Noahs of their lives. To trust the seers. I wish that the church could just invent a special pair of glasses that we could hand out to those suffering from Noah blindness to help them to see who really has their best interest at heart before they suffer those painful Noah moments, to help them to recognize those that have the ability to see the long-term sources of happiness, and those that, as the scriptures describe, are more concerned about themselves than our welfare. So, a couple of questions to ponder, and maybe you just want to ask yourself these things. Am I being blinded by any Noahs? If so, what will I do about it? Are there any possible Noah moments in my future? And is there anything I can do now to prevent them or, or lessen their impact? And then, how can I listen more closely to the seers? I pray that that distinction will ever be clear in your eyes and that we can all listen to the prophets, the leaders, the righteous loving parents, and the Holy Spirit so that we'll be protected from the influence of the King Noahs and the tragedy of Noah moments. Well, now there's a shift in the story. There's no more Noah now. But we still have Amulon and those wicked priests out there. And then also don't forget that Alma and his people are out there in the land of Helam, who got out of the city before the whole Lamanite attack. And when the wicked priests see King Noah being burned, they decide uh, that they probably ought to skip town before things get bad for them too. And so they flee into the wilderness. And I feel that Amulon and the wicked priests have another important lesson to teach us about sin a certain aspect of sin. And there is a fairly balanced message for us here. There's the message of warning and the message of hope. We need both. We really need that balance lest we become too discouraged or too complacent. So let's begin with the message of warning. And for this section, if you're a teacher, you could approach this as a study guide sheet and allow your students the chance to discover some principles on their own. I'll make a, uh, a study guide available to you through download. And remember, with handouts like that, we're less concerned about getting the correct answer as we are about encouraging students to think about the scriptures. With the scriptures, there's rarely one right answer. But allow me to lead you through some truths that, that I've discovered. I like to begin this portion of the lesson with the following icebreaker question. 
Why do you think it's foolish to justify sin by saying, eh, you can always repent? I found that to be a really good discussion starter with many different possible answers and a really good lead into this story. King Noah's people and Amulon and the wicked priests will teach us a very important reason for why we should never justify sin by saying, you can always repent. Now, the statement is basically true, isn't it? We can always repent as long as we haven't faced our final judgment yet. The power of Christ's atonement is ever there to rescue us and restore our worthiness when we turn to him with real intent. We don't want to downplay that truth, but we definitely don't want to use Christ's grace as an excuse for sin. Still, as powerful as repentance is, there is something that it's not capable of doing. So I want you to see the effect that Amulon and the wicked priests have on both Limhi's people and Alma's people. Take a look at the following verses and list the problems that they cause the people. And if you're using the study guide as a teacher, you might want to display these two background summaries to kind of help your students find where these things fit in the story. And in chapter 20, Limhi's people are now in bondage to the Lamanites, and they're forced to pay a tribute of half of all they own. Well, the wicked priests out there, they decide that they need some wives, and they go and they kidnap 24 daughters of the Lamanites and carry them off into the wilderness. And what effect does that have? Well, we see that Limhi's people are falsely accused and are attacked by the Lamanites because of the actions of Amulon and the wicked priests. Also, we learn in Mosiah 21, 20-21, that Amulon and his priests would come into their land at night and steal from them and carry away their grain and precious things. They are certainly the cause for a lot of suffering among Limhi's people. And then for Alma, when his people are found by the Lamanites and Amulon is put in charge over them, how do they treat them? He exercises authority over him, persecutes him, and lays heavy tasks or burdens upon them. The people suffer great affliction, and they begin to pray. But Amulon makes a decree that anybody who is found calling upon God should be put to death. So they're not even able to pray out loud. Amulon makes the lives of Alma and his people absolutely miserable. And what lesson do you suppose that this could teach us about sin? Now remember that these men used to be their heroes. They used to idolize them. Now how do they feel about them? They want nothing to do with them. They want them out of their lives. But the consequences of their decisions are coming back to haunt them later. That's the problem with sin. Out in the wilderness, the amulons of our lives circle and sometimes return at times when we would very much like to be rid of them. With Alma's people, when Amulon shows up on the scene, they've already repented. They've been forgiven. They've been baptized. And yet, Amulon shows up and causes them all of these problems. Can you see why it's foolish to justify sin with the you-can-always-repent line? Because the Amulons of our lives don't like to let us go. The consequences of our previous choices can show up at the most inopportune times. 
even after we've repented. Repentance can do so much for us and and can make us spiritually spotless. But in many cases, it can't change the natural consequences of our decisions, at least in this life. For example, my grandpa spent uh, much of his life smoking and, and drinking alcohol and living a very unhealthy lifestyle. But in his later years, he changed. He repented. And I do believe that there is a place in the celestial kingdom for him. But did that bring his health back? It didn't. It couldn't. And he did have many health problems as a result of that former lifestyle. I've known of several young people who have made moral mistakes. And then soon after, the partner decides they want nothing to do with them anymore. They got what they wanted, and now they're moving on to a new relationship. Sometimes leaving the other with a child to raise alone. Individuals who end up in prison may have a change of heart. I know of inmates who have, and their repentance is sincere, and I believe that God forgives them. But they still have to serve out their sentence. If our poor decisions hurt other people, we can't turn back the hands of time and remove that pain and hurt. We can try, and it can help, but we can't take it back. Do you understand what I mean by ambulance? and why it's so important for us not to justify sin. And I don't believe that God is really behind it, uh, meeting out punishments with anger. I believe in the old saying that we're punished by our sins rather than for them. But the consequences of sin are real. The whole purpose of the commandments is to protect us from those things. And when we step outside of those bounds, we open ourselves up for future pain and difficulty. Now that's the message of warning. How about the message of hope? I told you we needed both. And what's the hope? Both Limhi's people and Alma's people eventually get back to Zarahemla. They both escape the influence of Amulon and rejoin the people of God, who it says, receive them with joy. Like the prodigal son returning to his father, God and his church stand ever ready to welcome you back as sons and daughters of God and not as slaves or servants. And though your sins be as scarlet, they may be as white as snow. You can read about how those escapes took place in Mosiah 22 and Mosiah 24. And even though we may have to face the amulons of our lives for a time, ultimately, through the atonement and resurrection, even they will eventually be eliminated. There is one more quick point that I want to make. I want you to draw a comparison between Limhi's people and Alma's people. This isn't just a story about sin, but it's also a story about repentance. I believe that they teach us something critical about the true attitude of repentance. So read the following sets of verses and compare their attitudes And which course of action do you think God prefers? You'll look at Limhi's people in Mosiah 21, 1-12, and Alma's people in Mosiah 24, 10-16. And what you're going to find is that Limhi's people try very hard to free themselves from their consequences. They murmur and complain, and they fight against them. They go to battle against the Lamanites three times, and each time, they're defeated. Is there a lesson in that? 
Sometimes our attitude towards repentance is one of complaint and fighting. We try to free ourselves. Maybe we feel we don't need the help of others, or the priesthood, or God to help us solve our problems. We can do it all on our own. Or if we do go to the priesthood, do we murmur, or reject, or fight against the councils of priesthood leaders, or complain about restrictions that may be placed on our membership? As a bishop, you sometimes have to explain the natural consequences of people's choices, the things that they might face. You give them certain counsels and corrections that they'll need to perform and and the effort that will need to be expended, and even at times, some church disciplinary measures to implement. Now, fortunately, as a bishop, I have only ever encountered humble and willing acceptance of those things. But I do know that when my dad served as a bishop, that he sometimes mentioned, and not by name, of course, individuals who got angry with him as a bishop when he felt that they should wait before they returned to the temple or partake of the sacrament for a time. This attitude is perhaps a good indicator that a heart has not yet truly changed and that more time and effort are going to be required. But look at Alma's people. What was their attitude to their burdens? In verse 12, they pour out their hearts to God. And then you get this excellent phrase in verse 15. They did submit cheerfully and with patience to all the will of the Lord. And then it says they had great faith and patience. And because they're willing to do that, God eases their burdens, makes them light, visits them in their afflictions, strengthens them. This is the true attitude of repentance. The willful, cheerful, submitting to all of God's will. I'm certain that when we submit to God's will with patience, He does help ease our burdens, those consequences and the amulons that show up. He's going to comfort us in those things. Even the things that we can't change, He's going to give us strength to bear up under them. And since Alma's people get to that point seemingly quickly, how long is it before they're freed? Not very long. As soon as God can see that they have had the change of heart, he frees them, they're delivered, and they get back to Zarahemla. But what about Limhi's people? Do they ever get to that point? They do. After the fighting, look at how their attitude changes in 21, 13 through 16, and then verses 31 and 35. Can you see the attitude of true repentance in them now? They humble themselves. They subject and submit themselves. They too, like Alma's people, cry mightily unto God. And also, they have their burdens eased, and they begin to prosper by degrees. As we repent by degrees, or little by little, we too are going to begin to see the healing process take effect, and the blessings return. In verse 31, they say that they would have gladly joined themselves with the members of the church, and then they make a covenant with God to keep his commandments. One of the attitudes of a truly repentant person is a desire to join yourself with God's people and his church, to engage fully in that community, and to make covenants. Uh, They want to take the sacrament. They want to go to the temple. They want those blessings restored to them again. And then another great phrase, they did wait upon the Spirit of the Lord. And in verse 35, 
they prolonged the time. Sometimes repentance takes time, as does escaping our amulons. Changing our hearts completely is a process, and we need to be patient and diligent until our complete deliverance comes. Sometimes we get impatient. We want the consequences to be removed right now. We live in a quick-fix world. We think in terms of seconds instead of months or years. Sometimes we need to prolong the time and wait upon the Spirit of the Lord before we take the sacrament again, or go to the temple, or serve a mission, or be freed from our amulons. But if we're patient, eventually we will find ourselves rejoicing once again within the walls of Zarahemla. Now, this whole story is such a great example of how people fall into sin and what happens because of it, and then, most importantly, the right way to escape it. It's a story that I think plays out in every single one of our lives in some measure. So, maybe some personal questions for you to consider. Do I need to repent and turn my heart back to God? How can I foster the true attitude of repentance? Am I willing to submit cheerfully and with patience to all the will of the Lord? Am I willing to wait upon the Spirit for the Lord to deliver me? Like I said in my last video, if you've left Zarahemla, please come back, and I know that you will be welcomed with joy. There may be some work ahead, some burdens to bear, and you may have to wait upon the Spirit of the Lord, but you will make it back. I plead with all of you, especially the youth, to learn from these people's mistakes. Don't go down the same road. Trust the vision of the seers, the Abinadis, your real friends. May the Noah moments be few and far between in your lives. May you escape your amulons and always harbor the true attitude of repentance, submitting cheerfully and with patience to all the will of the Lord in your journeys back to Zarahemla. That, my friends, is my sincere prayer for all of you. And that is all I have for you this week. Next week, we're going to focus exclusively on Abinadi's message and then Alma's message at the Waters of Mormon. So, lots of good things to come. I hope you enjoyed the lesson. If you did, share it with somebody that you feel it could help. Subscribe to the channel if you haven't yet. Thank you for watching, and as always, get out there and teach with power.